We're finishing up our series on a few good men. And uh, last week we were talking about what real men do. We said that real men live pure lives. And on the back of your registration cards, I asked the men to rate yourselves between 1 and 10 how you're doing living a pure life. And, and you guys are honest, and I'm always amazed at how honest you are with me on the backs of those cards. And, uh, and, and because of your honesty, I realized that we've got a ways to go in that whole purity thing. You know, you put down numbers, and, and I wouldn't dare tell anybody what your numbers were, but, but we've got a ways to go. Here's the, here's the message I want you to hear. God is not so concerned with your past. God is interested in your future. So uh, I don't want you to get hung up on your past. If Satan can get you looking at the past, you keep stumbling over that and you, you mess up the future. It is never too late to start following God. And so God's message to you today is He has a desire to make your future better. He's not so worried about the past. He is so big and so powerful that He can mold your past to make you look more like Jesus Christ. And the incredible thing is He can take your past and He will if you'll let Him. He'll take the thing that you are most ashamed of in your past and He will use that to reach someone else who's going through a similar circumstance. When, when no one else can reach them, you would be the person that say, I know how you feel. And God connects your hearts and He begins to use your past, the mess-ups you made. He's so powerful, He can turn that into something for His good, which, number one, molds you to look like Jesus Christ, but number two, helps you to lead someone else down that path. second thing we said was that, that real men lead with truth. God created men to lead. And uh, God has given us that role. And, and see, guys, here's the, the scary thing. You are the spiritual leader in your home. You are leading your children somewhere. The, the question is, where are you leading them? Are you leading them farther, closer to God? Or are you leading them away from God? Because you are leading whether you want to or not. You are the spiritual leader in the home. The question is, where are you leading them? Third thing we said was that a, that a real man writes wrong. And we talked about the difference between discipline and punishment. And guys, when I ask you to evaluate yourselves here, you scored, every one of you scored higher on the, the discipline or leads with truth, uh, rights wrong. Every one of you scored higher on the rights wrong than you did on the lives with purity. And I'm, I'm grateful to God that you are involved in the disciplining of your children. And, and so I'm, I'm applauding you for, for being involved in that. But let me also offer a word of caution. Do not think you can lead your children with truth if you're living an impure life. Kids are smart. They see through the charade. And so my caution to you is, if you want your children to, to be men and women of integrity, you must live that out before them or you, you forfeit all of your rights of influence in their lives. Now today we're going to talk about the fourth one. We looked at last week and we just barely even mentioned it was a real man follows the king. Our children want to know why they're alive. Our children want to know that there is a purpose beyond making a buck. They'll figure that out real fast, that just making more money and just getting a, a better paying job and a higher uh, job responsibility, titles, all that, they figure out real fast, that's a dead-end road. And they want to know why they live. And, and so what we're going to try to do today is we're going to open up the Scripture and I want to show you two men who followed God wholeheartedly and I want you to see the difference that it made in their lives. They were following the King wholeheartedly. We're going to read several passages, I mean one passage is several verses in this one passage. Uh, one of my favorite Passages in Scripture. And this is, this is actually the guy who, who my son got his name from. He's my favorite Old Testament character. It's, it's Caleb. And, and I want you to watch what Caleb um, says here in this verse. This is in Joshua. Now, what has happened? I've got to set the background. Joshua, Moses has died. Big Mo's dead. He passed on his um, leadership role to Joshua. Actually, God delegated Joshua to be the leader. 
And so they are now about to enter. They actually, they're coming into the promised land and, um, and, and they're, they're supposed to go and wipe out the, the people in the promised land, the, the enemy. So 40 years before this, actually 45 years before this, the Israelites had come to the edge of the promised land. They chose 12 spies and, and God, uh, Moses sent them to go spy out the land. So they go this big route and it actually looks like this big old upside down teardrop. They start at Kadesh Barnea. They go all the way up through the promised land over the Jordan River back down by the Dead Sea and they come back and they give this incredible report. Well, two of them do. It was a land better than they'd ever seen before. It was uh, better than their wildest dreams and they came back and they said, yes, it's a great land. And, and the Bible tells us that one man in particular stands up and he says, this is an awesome land. God has promised us this land. Let's take that land. His name was Caleb. And then there was another guy that stood up with him. His name was Joshua. And he said, yes, God is for us. And then there's ten spies. These were the two good guys, the two men of God, the few good men. Then the other ten who were leaders in this society... The other ten said, oh, yeah, it's a good land, but there are giants there. The, the cities are fortified. We can't take this. It would be better that we died in the wilderness. It would be better that we go back and live as slaves in Egypt than to try to go into this land. And, and Caleb stands up and he goes, what? No, 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 no. We've got to go. God is for us. God will deliver us. And it says that the ten leaders melted the people's hearts with fear. So much so that God says, okay, you cannot go into the promised land now. You're going to wander in the wilderness one year for every day that the spies fight out the land. Forty years you're going to wander in the wilderness. On top of that, every male the age of 20, that was fighting age in, in the Jewish nation, every male the age of 20 and above is going to die in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua. So now they've gone this whole route and they've, they've actually fought a few battles. Look what happens in Joshua chapter 14 beginning in verse 6. A delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea, 45 years earlier, you remember? Here's what he said. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as He promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as when I was... Uh, as when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. My dad's 87. My dad will be here next week. I guarantee you my dad would say these same things. I'm still as strong. I'm still, you know, he, dad's walking hunched over. Dad still tells me he can whip my rear, and then I'm like, yeah, daddy, okay. Um, never mind. So I can just see my dad saying these same things. And he says, I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. And here it is. So give me the hill country. You've got to understand this. The hill country is the hardest place to drive out the enemy. Not only are there hills you have to go up, but the, but the cities are built fortified, walled cities on top of the hills. It's the worst place if you're going to try to conquer something. Caleb says, give it to me. God promised it to me. Give it to me. Give me the hill country. Um, ah, the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts we found the descendants of Anak living there 
in, in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, because he what? Wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, this word we have translated wholeheartedly is used only seven times in the entire Old Testament. And, and this, is, this is real important because do you know who it, whom it was used to refer to every time it's used those seven times? Caleb and Joshua. Now, the Bible is this really interesting book, and, and it's unique in that God used 40 different authors to write this, this Bible over a period of 1,500 years. And yet the, the, the theme is still central that, that there is one God, and, and you can actually see the beginnings of, of this idea of Jesus Christ coming as the sacrificial Savior. You can see that in Genesis. So uh, one pastor years ago, he said there's a scarlet thread that runs throughout the Bible. The scarlet thread is the blood of Jesus. You can find the blood of Jesus somewhere foretold or, or mentioned in all the pages of the Scripture. And so this, this is unique in that not just one person wrote it, 40 authors over 1,500 years. And it was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. The interesting thing about Caleb and Joshua is that God's Holy Spirit had to make up a new word to describe these wholehearted followers of God, these godly men who, who served God with all of their hearts. Um, and, and this idea, it's a hunting term. And any of you hunters? I know some of you are. When you hunt, you are supposed to focus on the goal, right? If you're not focusing, where does your, where does your gun point and where do you shoot? You miss the target. And so the idea is to focus solely on your goal. <laughs> One year, I, I, I've done a lot of dove hunting. And back when I was in Austin, I was single, so I did a lot of dove hunting during dove season. And when you're single, you can do that thing. You can blow as much money as you want to on shotguns and shells. And, and you know, there's no accountability whatsoever. So I was going hunting a lot during dove season. One of the guys in my church had several acres of land, and it was this great plot of land. There was this pond right in the middle. Now, he was, he was kind of the lazy hunter. All he wanted to do was sit at the pond. Well, I'm one of those that if nothing's flying at the pond, I get bored. I want to go walk in the... In the field. So this one day we're sitting there, it's hot. I'm like, dude, I'm going to walk. And he said, okay, I will too. Well, we took a rookie hunter with us. Now, in, in retrospect, this is the last guy that should ever have a shotgun in his hands. And we tried to stay as far away from him. I'm, I'm serious. This guy, one time we shot a bird and he was driving us so crazy, it kind of went down. We said, you go find the bird. And, and, you know, it was wounded. And you go find it. Well, the next thing we know, we hear, boom! And, and we look and there's nothing but feathers flying through the sky homeboy had jumped up the, the wounded dove which flying you know about like this and it's almost sitting on the end of his shotgun he shoots it and it's just <laughs> we said that one's yours dude you you can have that one because there was nothing left of the breast of the, the dove and that's all the dove is is breast so anyway we go walking well i decide i'm going to walk along the fence line and i send these two guys i say you guys walk through the field if there's any dove on the ground they'll you'll jump them up and we'll shoot birds because i'm bored i got to shoot something and so I'm walking along the fence line. There's trees over here. And so I'm kind of peering through the trees looking for birds flying this way. And I know they're going to holler at me if, if they jump any birds that fly my way. All right, so I'm walking. And all of a sudden I see about 12 dove coming right for our field. Well, th what we would do is we'd whistle. You know, and that means stop what you're doing. And, and most guys would then squat down because a dove has great eyesight. If they see you, they veer off. And you never get a shot. Suckers can fly as fast as 60 miles an hour, so it's pretty challenging when they're flying straight. 
uh, at you, but, but you, know, you stop in your tracks and you hope they don't see you until they're in range. Well, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm looking through the trees, watching, watching, watching. All of a sudden, all 12 of them veer off. I'm like, ah, what happened? So I turn around and I look in the field and I, and I understand their change in flight pattern. All I can see is this big white butt hopping up and down in the middle of the field. And the other guy's going... And I'm like, what in the world? So I, I walk over there, and then I hear him moaning, and he's trying to get... He had squatted down on a cactus. <laughs> and he had several thorns well up in his posterior. And he's like, pull them out! And we're like, dude, you are on your own. I ain't touching your backside, you know. Real men don't touch another man's backside. I don't care what you got stuck back there. So, <laughs> needless to say, we distracted the birds because there's a big white... Mo- he was lily white. I'm telling you, that's the whitest backside I've ever seen. And uh, the birds saw that and flew off. And so we tried to explain to him, okay, number one, look where you squat. You know, you should look first, but then be still. And, and see, we told him if he's a real man, he'd have stayed still anyway, shot the birds, then pulled the things out of his backside. Come on, sissy boy. I don't think we ever took him again. Now, the whole point is, in hunting, whether it's dove hunting or deer hunting, whatever, you need to be still and focus on your goal. Well, men, that's the whole idea of following God wholeheartedly. To be successful in, in hunting, you've got to concentrate. To be successful in being a, a, a godly man, you've got to focus as well. I want you to listen to this letter. This is written by someone originally. It appeared in the Dallas Morning News, and it was in Living with Teens magazine. Listen to this, uh, this cry of this generation. I'm a member of the upcoming generation, the one after Generation X that is yet to be given a name. I will admit that I wasn't, go- I wasn't planning to write this, but after the massacre in Littleton, Colorado, I realized that as a member of this generation that kills without remorse, I had a duty to challenge all of my elders to explain why they have allowed things to get so bad. These questions don't represent only me, but a whole generation that is struggling to grow up and make sense of this world. We have questions. We want ac- explanations. People may label us Generation Next, but we are more appropriately labeled Generation Why. Why did most of you lie when you made the vow till death do us part? Why do you fool yourselves into believing that divorce is better for the kids in the long run? Why do so many of you divorced parents spend more time with your new boyfriend or girlfriend than with your own children? Why do you look down on parents who decide to quit work and stay home to raise their children? Why does the television do most of the talking at family meals? Why is work more important than your own family? Why is money more important than relationships? Why is quality time generally no longer than a five to ten minute daily conversation? Why do you try to make up for the lack of time you spend with us by giving us more and more material objects that we really don't need? Why does your work in the form of a cell phone, laptop, computer, whatever, always come with us on vacations? Why have you neglected to teach us values and morals? Why haven't you lived moral lives to provide us a model? Why isn't God one of the most important words in our household? Why do you play God and allow abortion? Why don't you have enough faith to teach us abstinence rather than safe sex? Why do you allow us to watch violent movies but expect us to maintain a childlike innocence? Why do you allow us to spend unlimited amounts of time on the Internet but still are shocked about our knowledge of how to build bombs? Why are you so afraid to tell us no? 
Why is it so hard for you to realize that school shootings and other violent juvenile behavior result from a lack of your attention more than anything else? Call us Generation Next if you want to, but I think you will be surprised at how we will fail to fit into your neat little categories. These questions should and will be asked of the generations that have failed us. You have pursued your selfish desires for years, but now is the time to reap what you've sown. Some rude awakenings like, little, like the Littleton Massacre have occurred and probably will continue until you can begin to answer our questions and make the drastic changes to put us, your children, first. Time is running out. Soon we'll be grown. It will be too late. You might not think we are worth it, but I guarantee you that Littleton will look like a drop in the bucket compared to what might occur when a neglected Generation Y comes to power. It was written by an A&M college graduate as she was pondering her upbringing and pondering her future as well as the future of her generation. Men, if, if you've never been serious before, now's the time to get serious about following the king. I want to give you some benefits of following the king. And, and if these sound good to you, then maybe today's the day that you make that decision. I'm going to follow him regardless. First benefit of following the king is it reduces frustration. Anybody ever get frustrated? Uh-huh. If you don't know the direction of your life, daily decisions become very, very hard because you've got no basis for making them. There's no standard. You don't have a compass. Outside of God's Word, there is no true north. I think the haunting cry of this letter to the editor is that... Uh, these kids want direction. They want someone who knows the way. They want to follow them, but they're not seeing it out there. And when there's no standard, people begin to make up the rules as they go. In my daily devotions, I'm reading through the book of Numbers. I'm almost finished with Numbers. I was in Exodus. I was reading about Big Mo because I love Big Mo and Caleb and, and uh, Joshua. And now I'm in Numbers. And, and as I'm reading in Numbers, this, this theme keeps coming back. And I know what's coming up when I get into Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Um, in, in Judges in particular, Joshua, the, the Judges says this, that people followed God all the days that Joshua was alive. Joshua and Caleb were alive. But when they died, it says no one knew who God was anymore. And then through Judges, throughout this whole time, it says that people did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like today. When the people who know God don't live out their beliefs then it causes a whole generation to veer away from God. How can they follow you if you don't know where you're going? Caleb and Joshua remained focused on God for 45 years while they wandered in the wilderness. Don't tell me how long you've been faithful to God until you're getting close to the 45-year mark. I turned 45 this summer. They were faithful to God longer than I've been alive. How'd they do it? They focused. See, the Bible is real clear on this. Proverbs 29, 18 says, When people do not accept divine guidance... Divine guidance means God's Word. When people do not accept God's Word, they run wild. The writer of this letter is giving us a warning that we had better wake up. Unless someone from an older generation begins to live out what they say they believe, we're in trouble. Somebody needs to establish a standard and live it out on a daily basis. That great philosopher Alice in, Alice in Wonderland said, if you don't know where you're headed, any road will get you there. 
The Bible says it this way in James 1.8, the double-minded man can never keep a steady course. Double-minded means you can't ever make up your mind. I don't know if I'm going to go this way. I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to go this way. I don't have any standards. If you don't have a clear purpose, a clear direction, it's like driving in a thick fog. I've been on the lake in a thick fog. And, and all the trees look alike in a thick fog. All of the, the uh, lights, if you can even pick them out on the shoreline, look alike in, the, in a thick fog. That's what it's like to live your life without God's Word, divine guidance. But the bigger tragedy is, if you live your life like that, you raise up a generation of individuals who live their lives like that, and society suffers. It's what's been happening in America. God's guidance is this inside job. We studied the Holy Spirit, uh, the Trinity, a few months ago, and God's guidance for you is an inside job. God has promised that if you'll ask Him into your life, He will plant His Holy Spirit inside of you and, and make you aware of what to do, right and wrong. And so God's guidance comes to people who depend on Him. Well, if you don't know if you're depending on God, let me give you just a quick little test. You want to know whether you're depending on God or not, look at your prayer life. Whatever you're praying about, you're depending on God for. Whatever you're not praying about, you've told God you don't need His guidance and you are on your own. Lots of folks make all kinds of decisions. Following the King says, I pray about my relationships, I pray uh, about my deadlines, my purchases, everything. A lot of people are pursuing goals and they're going to get 10, 20, 30 years down the road and they're going to say, my goals are empty. And they're going to have this sense of hopelessness and helplessness because they weren't God's goals. The thing that the Bible tells us, though, is you don't have to live like that. In Isaiah, there's a promise. Isaiah 26.3 You, Lord, give true peace to those who depend on You because they trust You. Trust means focus. Trust means obedience. Trust means faith. If you want peace in your life, it comes from God. The reason most of you don't have peace with God is because you don't have the peace of God. You don't have peace with God. And He's not promised to give you anything if you are disobedient and you go your own way. You're going to be awfully frustrated without a purpose that lives on past you. So why not avoid all of that frustration, find out the King's purpose, and live it out on a daily basis? Number two, following the King increases my motivation. Just think about Caleb and Joshua. I don't know if you've, if you've read much of the Old Testament, but we just read that they followed God wholeheartedly. You get to spy out the promised land, and, you get, and you're thinking, we get to live here. This is awesome. When we first bought our house, when we first came to Palestine, it was being built, and we're like, this is awesome. We're, we're getting to pick out, well, Janie did, get to pick out the, the uh, wallpaper and the colors and the carpet. This was awesome. We get to live here someday. And then a bunch of dipsticks rain on your parade because they, they refuse to believe in God. Man, that's got to stink. And I want to ask you something. In the churches you've been in, or let's just say just about anywhere, when is the majority right? Because the majority said, no, let's not go into the promised land. And God said, go into the promised land. So then the, the majority, after God has says, do not go up. Tell them, do not go up. I am not with you anymore. You're going to wander in the wilderness. Do not go up. You know the next day what they did? The ten spies who'd given the bad report, they gather everybody, they go up. You know what happens? They get whipped. And they come back moaning and complaining. Oh, how... You didn't listen to 
the two who are in tune with God. You see, we don't vote on a lot of stuff around here. In fact, we vote on a budget and we vote on a senior pastor if you need one. It's not whether you like him or not. You know, if something happens to me, we're not moving, but if I'm going to die someday, what the church will vote on is a senior pastor. We don't vote on other stuff. We think it's stupid to vote on the color of the carpet. We think it's stupid to vote on the color of the walls. That's just stupid stuff to vote on. We let the people who are doing the work give us input and then we try to make the best decision we can. Now, we're not idiots. We're not going to come up with an $8 million budget and say, you have to take it. We're not that dumb. But voting tends to divide people. And then when when there are really important issues, think this through. Somebody can come into your church and they cannot even be a Christian and you're going to allow them to vote? I've been in churches where they lined up the whole family. Dad was not following God, so he can't possibly know God's idea on this situation. Then he tells his wife, you're going to vote like this. And then they have six little children all the way down to four years old. And he tells them all to vote the same way. How stupid is that? Oh, y'all don't think so. Thank you. I mean, come on. We don't do stuff like that because really this is not, this is not a democracy. It's not a dictatorship either. This is a theocracy. I'm not saying that we don't always... Uh, that we always hear God's Word because sometimes we miss it. We've made huge mistakes in our church and we laugh it off. We call everything an experiment. This is an experiment. If it doesn't work, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. We obviously didn't hear God's Word on that. But here's the thing. Sometimes when you're trying something just innovative, just out there that nobody else wants to try, even though you fail, God then opens up another door and shows you something you never would have considered without that failure. We are not afraid to fail. We practice it every week. And we're learning stuff. So we're not going to vote on things because I have yet to find in Scripture when the majority was right. Because very often the majority doesn't have their eyes on God. Very often, in fact, every time I've seen in Scripture, there's one or two or three godly men who are saying, whoa, this is not right! And the majority ignores them. And I think that's why churches are closing the doors. You find a church where there's some men who will follow God with all their hearts, they're not going to close their doors until those men and women quit following God with all their hearts. Then they're in trouble. In the Old Testament, when, when God had departed from one place, they actually wrote Ichabod on the front of, the, of a building. It means the glory of God has departed. There are some churches that don't even know God has left them. They should have Ichabod on their marquees if they were being honest. Okay, that's not even in the sermon. But you're you're Caleb and you're you're Joshua and you're thinking you're going into the promised land. You're thinking that you're following God and the majority votes against you. And God says, not yet. And God says, you're going to come into this land, but not yet. In fact, it's going to be at least 40 years before you get my promise. Now, here's what mature people do. They understand that not yet does not equal no. They understand that the promise of God will be accomplished regardless of the circumstances or the majority. God's going to accomplish His purposes. They got through the next 45 years believing that God... God always fulfills His promises. And you've got to think about this too, because if you study this... (laughs) All they had to eat 
was manna, which was something they'd never seen before. Manna means what is it? They walked out one morning, there's manna on the ground. They're like, what's that? And it's, I don't know. So that's the name, manna. They eat it for 40 years. And the Bible tells us that God was testing them to see whether they would be obedient. 40 years you eat manna. And then at night they started complaining about no meat, so God brought quail in. There's at least a million people that, that God is feeding manna and quail every day. And so you've tried manna every way you can. You've had broiled manna, boiled manna, fried manna. You've had manna that just sits out stale manna. You've had manicotti and banana bread. And you've done it all. I don't know if you've, if you've ever... When we first got married, Janie's a great cook. When we first got married, she would always try to put... Was it peas? Peas and green beans. Now, I'm a vegetable-eating guy, but... She got to the point that I just wasn't eating them. And, and I wasn't trying to hurt her feelings at all, but she's like, how come you don't eat those? Aren't they good? And I'm like, I'm sick of peas. And it wasn't every night. You know, it was two or three times a week. She was trying to be this, this great, because she's a home ec major, she's been this great wife, and she had this nice balanced meal. And I'm like, I want steak and potatoes, baby. And so for a long time, I, I don't even remember how long, long time she didn't fix peas and, and, and green beans. Can you imagine eating peas and green beans every day for the next 40 years? Sometimes if, if there's something that I've had a lot of, you get that little in your throat, you know. Can you imagine every day? How do, how do you manage every day eating the same meal? Job knew this. Look what Job said. My life drags by day after a hopeless day. I'm tired of living. My life makes no sense. I think a lot of us can identify with that statement, but that's not living for the King. Look what, what the King promises you in Jeremiah 29.11. I know what I'm doing. We don't think He does, do we? God says, I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. Hope changes things. You give somebody hope, they can endure anything. And I'm telling you that when you discover why God put you on this earth, it will increase your motivation. Your motivation level will go up. And motivation matters. Caleb and Joshua had hope. They had motivation to follow God because they trusted God and they focused on God during difficult times. Two years ago, we decided that we were going to go to Disney World. And we told our kids, we're going to save and save and save. We're going to skip all these other little family vacations that we've done. We're going to put all that money towards going to Disney World. And we said, we'll pay for the plane tickets, the tickets to get into Disney World, the meals. We'll pay for everything except your souvenirs. I ain't buying your souvenirs. So they said, okay. And they got motivated. I was amazed. All of my kids took well over 200 bucks on no salary. I don't know how they did it. I may be missing something somewhere. <laughs> they took over $200 to Disney World. And I was like, wow, motivation matters. And the cool thing was, you know, we're down there and, and there's people going into the souvenir shops and their kids are dragging their parents. Come on, I want this, I want this. And Janie are like, man, this is sweet. Because we didn't have any of that. Our kids planned out how much money they had each day and they'd say, hey, before we leave, can we stop at the souvenir shop? I'm like, yeah, man, I'd go sit down outside. There's no pressure. No dad can I have money. They knew how much money they... I was like, this is sweet. That wasn't in here either. God longs to bless every person. But obedience is the key. God does not bless a disobedient person. Following the King means you discover why God put you on this planet. When you do... It will decrease your frustration and increase your motivation. Third, it allows me to focus. 
Following the king gives me a track to run on. When I was growing up, we lived just about half a mile from um, the railroad depot, kind of like downtown Palestine. And I remember one day we were playing kickball out in the street. That's what we did in Borger, Texas. And uh, we were playing kickball, and I remember kicking the ball, and I was running to first base when all of a sudden this train car goes boom. I still remember the ball of fire coming up. I remember it shook the ground like, like uh, um, an earthquake, and I remember falling down. I'm running to first base. Boom. <clears throat> And, and everybody starts screaming. All the kids in the yard, ah, we're screaming, running around, you know, we don't know what's going on. Well, the train with chemicals in it had gotten off the track and it caused chaos and people died. And, you know, uh, windows and businesses blocks away were shattered because this was a big boom. Well, the idea is when you run on the track for which you were made, everything goes smoothly train gets off the track, all hell breaks loose. A lot of people are living their lives off the track. It's no wonder that the gates of hell are beating them down and people's lives are ending up empty. I don't care what the commercials tell you, you can't have it all. You have to make choices all the time. So you've got to choose what are you going to build your life around. When, when you follow the king, it determines not only what you do, but what you don't do. When, when I know what God has called me to do, and then some opportunity comes up, it's real simple. I, I say, does this fulfill what the king called me to do? If it's yes, yeah, I do it. If it's no, I don't do it. Look at Proverbs 4. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet, then stick to the path. Don't get sidetracked. Or, it, it's easy to get sidetracked and distracted, isn't it? None of you ever get distracted by your cell phones in the car. Uh-uh. What cell phone? Yeah. None of you text while you're driving, do you? <laughs> or none of you scroll down your, uh, your phone book trying to find the right number while you're driving. Nobody does that, right? Nobody puts the phone to their ear and adjusts the radio, turns on the blinker, and looks in the mirror at the same time, right? Okay. Only the women. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's the cool thing about having no hair. You never have to check it. I'll ride with the window down. Doesn't care. My kids are like, you messed up my hair. So I can fix that. <laughs> Most people don't intend to get sidetracked in the car and have a wreck. Most people don't intend to get sidetracked in their lives and get addicted to drugs. Or they don't set out to get a divorce. They don't set out to waste their kids or their lives. They blow it when they take their eyes off of God and they get distracted from what's really important. George Barna is a Christian pollster. He says that fewer than one out of every ten Christians set specific goals for any particular year. What that means is 90% of Christians aim at nothing every year. You know what you hit when you aim at nothing? Nothing. Thank you. Y'all are paying attention. Could it be... That, that we're not following the king and we're not focusing on the king is the reason that in the average church, marriages are not being put back together. Could it be that the reason that, that drug addicts are not being set free in the average church is because we're not focusing on the king? God says, if you'll follow me and be obedient to me, I will radically pour out my Spirit upon you and lives will be changed. And I'll tell you this, life change is addicting 
You want something that will get you pumped up. You watch somebody's marriage get put back together. You watch a drug addict get clean. I just read Greg's story. Greg's been clean for seven months. I baptized him a few weeks ago and, and we shared that he's been clear for seven months. We're going to get his story on, on, on video so that you can hear it. And he'll tell you he didn't get clear, clean from drugs until he focused on the king. And he got a group of people around him to help him stay focused on the king. Seven months is a big deal. God will not waste, His Holy Spirit will not waste His time with a non-praying church, with non-praying individuals, non-praying families. So men, if there's a problem in your family, maybe you should look in the mirror. Maybe you need to go to God. And it's not too late. God raised Jesus from the dead. He can save your marriage. He can save your children. If you want to make a difference in your life, and you want to find fulfillment, you be focused. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3. I'm bringing all my energies to bear on this one thing, forgetting what is behind and looking forward to what lies ahead. When you know the King and you follow the King and you focus on the King, it keeps your priorities straight. And it gives you power in your life that you wouldn't have any other way. When you focus light, it, it gains a different power. You guys know about lasers. Lasers are everywhere nowadays. Lasers are focused light. Right now, this light is diffused. Now, it's quite hot up here. I'm sure you're not as hot as I am. This light is focused here, but, but this is really diffused light. The more focused it is, the more power it gains. There are lasers now that can cut through steel. There are lasers that can even cut diamonds because it's super focused and it gains power. The people who have made the greatest impact on our world have been the people who have had the deepest convictions, the most focused lives, for right or wrong. Dwight Moody was one of the great pastors in the United States, and he said this, Give me a man who says, This one thing I do, and not these 50 things I dabble in. He'd have, rather have one focused person than, than 50 distracted men. There's power in a focused life. You find someone who says, I will die for this cause, and you can't stop them. You may take their life, but generally they have impacted so many other people that they'll carry on the cause even after they're dead. When we get discouraged is when we take our eyes off of God and we focus on the problem. Caleb and Joshua have waited 45 years for this moment. They wandered with the Israelites, and I'm sure there were days they got old. It got old eating manna, but he never quit. I believe what carried him through was focusing on God's promises. And here's the other thing. The reason we get so discouraged is we don't realize there is a promise of God for every problem you will ever face. I mean, I dare you to write down some problem you're facing. You can't find it, I'll find a promise from the Scripture. You can write that on the back of your card today. We'll go on a journey. But the catch is, if we find that promise, you better hang on to it when we find that promise. We don't know God's Word, so we can't... We can't focus on God. We can't trust God's promises because we don't know them. And uh, faith comes when I see my problem, but I say, oh, wow, God, you said this, the problem's here. Because a lot of people talk about Christianity's blind faith. There's no such thing. That's a stupid statement. Christianity's very aware of the problem. God, i got a problem. But you're bigger than the problem. And your word says this. I'm going to choose. Faith is choosing to believe God's word regardless of how big the problem is. 
Now, we're humans, and, and we give in to, to uh, whining and complaining sometimes. That's why we need some good friends who will kick us in the rear sometimes. So what are you whining about? Focus on what you've got, not what you don't have. Quit focusing on those things. And think about the stupidity. <laughs> I, I keep using that word. Of saying, this problem's too big for God. Genesis 1.1 said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, it says in verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So, okay, let me get this straight. The one who spoke the words and gave light to our universe, your problem's too big for that God. Okay? The one who created everything that we can see, your problem's too big for Him. The one who walked the earth, God put him in a virgin's womb. Your problem's too big for that God. The, the one who, Jesus Christ, was the Word, was with God, was God. He walked the earth. He healed people of diseases. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead. And then himself, he was raised from the dead after three days in the... Your problem is too big for that God? That's not very realistic, is it? Maybe your God is too small. Because the God I serve has all power. He can choose to use it or He can choose not to. Faith is I'm going to believe Him whether He chooses to intervene in my situation or to use my situation to make me look more like Jesus. That's real faith. When you have a word from the king like Caleb did, you don't get to quit. I don't ever intend to retire from ministry. Now, y'all may boot me out and I'll, I'll go do something but I'm not going to retire from ministry. You don't get to retire as a Christian. When, when we went to this church planters conference, when we were first starting the church, the first thing they tell you, first day, they beat this into your head for an hour. And then they say, if this is not true of you, don't come back for the next hour. They say, you better have a call from God because there is nothing pleasant about planting a church. That means starting a church from scratch. If you don't have a call from God, when your friends who are helping you build that church, when they turn and they leave, because it happens in every church, and when your heart is going to explode, you better have a call from God because you don't get to quit. Well, I just want to, to give that to you by extension. If you're a Christian, I've heard so many Christians say, oh, God's called me to do this. Then why aren't you doing it? You don't get to retire from being a Christian. Following the king means he calls the shots, not you. I understand having seasons where you're worn out and you need to pull back and you need to refresh, but you don't get to retire from being a Christian. You don't get to quit. When I line up my efforts with the king of the universe, it reduces frustration, increases motivation, and focuses my life. And then finally, prepares me for this final exam. Let me give you this real quickly. One day God is going to audit your life. Anybody want to have an IRS audit? You want to have an audit from God. If you don't know Him, you want to have that audit less than you want to have the IRS audit you. And the cool thing is, you're going to stand before God, but God has given us the questions in advance to prepare us for this final. Wouldn't you love to have had that back in school? Have all the answers? One time I did, and she changed the test. A, E, you know, you memorize all of the answers and then they change the test. It's real obvious what you've done and you get in so much trouble. 
God has given us the questions in advance. Here they are. Two questions. He's going to ask, what would you do with my son, Jesus Christ? He's not going to ask you what denomination you attended. He's not going to ask you your vocation. He's not going to ask you how much money you made or how many places you served, how many boards you served on. What he's going to ask is, what would you do with Jesus Christ? I sent him to earth so that you could have a relationship with him. What would you do with my son, Jesus? The only acceptable answer to get into heaven is, I accepted what Christ did on my behalf. I asked Him to forgive my sins and be the leader of my life. That's question number one. You don't do that, then God says, because the only people who get into heaven are people who are related to God through Jesus Christ. If you say, I did not even bother to find out who Jesus Christ was, wrong answer, you don't get to go into heaven. The only way you get into heaven is on Jesus' ticket. Second thing God's going to ask you is, what did you do with all the stuff I gave you? I gave you resources. I gave you talents. I gave you abilities. What did you do with those things? Did you use them in selfish pleasure or did you use them serving the King? Because even if you're a Christian, you you get to go into heaven, but you will be judged on your contribution to life. God does not give you talents and abilities just for you. God doesn't even give you just talents and abilities so that you can work some job. And I'm not telling everybody they should be ministers. No. Or pastors. You're all ministers. God gives you talents and abilities, yes, so that you can go out in the workplace and you can tell people about Christ. But whatever you're good at, God says you should be doing in the church. This is the bride of Christ. If you don't like church, you don't like the bride of Christ. If you don't like my wife, you don't like me. Does that make sense? Okay, we've been too serious. Everybody's looking at me. Maybe now's the time you're ready to have meaning in your life. Would you bow your heads? And, and I just want to challenge you to pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I want to know why you made me and what you put me on this earth to do. Forgive me for living for myself. I want to live for you. Help me accept your son into my life. Lord, I ask You to put Your Spirit in my life, put Your love in me, and be my guide from here on out. In Your name I pray. Amen.